Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Emma Gray, an author and journalist who is originally from Glasgow but now based in London. Emma has been writing in Scots since she was a student at the University of Strathclyde and her debut novel, Be Good to Your Mammy, was published in August this year by Unbound Books, the world's first crowdfunding publisher. Emma has also published fiction and poetry in the UK and Ireland, while her journalism has appeared and numerous publications. Emma, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, the first thing I have to say is I love the title of your debut novel. Um, I mentioned it's in Scots, <laughs> Big Tia Tia Mami. That's a brilliant mm-hmm. title. It's the sort of book, certainly mm-hmm. up, up in Scotland, that people see it on the, the bookshelves or out in the tables and bookshops. It will pique their interest and hopefully they'll pick it mm-hmm. up. It, yeah, it, definitely. It was, it was a hard book to title. It got the right one in the end, but it was initially untitled for about nearly a year actually and then it was literally like it was something my gran used to say all the time she used to say be good to your mammy and you'll get your blessings I remember one day I was in the kitchen it was like 10 o'clock at night and I was like that to my mum I was like I've got it I'm gonna call it be good to your mammy and she's like yes call it that that's (laughs) it that's exactly what you're gonna call it and yeah that was how it went because it's funny you know that way sometimes I think writers sometimes they'll get the the title of the book will come to them right away and then it's always it's a constant while they're writing Mm -hmm. But I suppose that, that when you get that moment of inspiration and, and suddenly from not knowing what it is, after that you think, well, it couldn't ever have been called anything else. It really couldn't have. And the weird thing is the second book title, so I'm writing another one called Kathy Get Your Dancing Shoes On. I got the title for that. I was in Nardini's in the West End of Glasgow and it just popped into my head and I was like, that's a great title for a book. I'm going to write that. And, that. and that was it. And then the story literally formed around the title. It's a totally different process. And I mentioned that you've been published by Unbound Books, which mm-hmm. is the world's first crowdfunding publisher, which I think is a, an amazing thing. Because even before you get the book published, there's a real validation mm-hmm. in the fact that people have, I suppose, put their money where their mouth is and backed you to write this book and get it published. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been great because I think it allows books that would otherwise be like, no, that's ridiculous or we're not going to. There's a million reasons why my book would have never seen the light of day. It's in Scots. It's also written in different types of Scots and it's voiced by women in Scots. And unfortunately, until now, and I didn't even realise this until after it was published, every Scots book really that people know about train spawn, even famous examples in TV, like you've got your still game and stuff. It's all men, men's stories. And I even think like no one had really done one. And someone said to me last night, there are men in your book, but they're very much background characters. And I was like, that wasn't intentional. It just, that was literally just the way the story went. But I'm glad I did it like that. I also think it's, I think it's important that, you know, particularly in Scotland, and I've, I've had loads of chats in the podcast about the importance of Scottish literature, just promoting Scottish voices. But mm-hmm. also within that, it's important to, to promote the Scottish voice as in the Scottish language, which is probably mm-hmm. underrepresented in literature. It's really, really, and, and you definitely get told not to do it. Like I've been told not to do it. I've been told to tone it down or stop writing. And someone actually wrote a story so like the old dance halls in Glasgow were a big thing for me. I found them fascinating because I remember when I was younger and everyone was going out clubbing to like Sucky Hall Street. And I, then I compared it in my head to what Sucky Hall Street was like when my gran was younger. And I was like, 
it sounded better back then. I'm not going to lie. It did sound slightly better. And then, you know, I wrote a story about the old dance and, and it was in Scots, sent it to a publication and someone said, I don't know why you felt the need to write it in Scottish dialect. And I was like, because that's how they spoke. I don't understand why this is a controversial thing to do, you know. When I look at literature from other, even other parts of the UK or further afield, mm-hmm. people are much more comfortable. And, and also as readers, we're quite happy to read books that are in either a different language or, or vernacular or, or in the kind of cadence of where it's, where it's set. For some reason, mm-hmm. that seems to jar with people when it's written in Scots. I think Scots, a lot of it's a class issue. Unfortunately, I think they, you know, they drum it out of you. You get told, like, you know, it's yes, not I. And it's quite, it's still a recent thing. Like, I mean, I did briefly did the teacher training course up at Glasgow Uni about five, five years ago now. And um, I remember meeting someone down in London who'd also been on the course. And he told me he was like, they're still like it was literally the same year as me but different school and he was like oh yeah we got told that as well the kids said I tell them off don't let them do it and I know that the curriculum they're trying to change it but it isn't like you know for your hire and all that definitely when I was at school if I'd tried to write a story in Scots and submit it they would have like been like no you can't do that and even the same at university it was very much we're going to produce a bunch of writers Strathclyde for sure we're going to produce a bunch of writers who all sound exactly like me. And I was fortunate that I never actually did the English the writing course at Strathclyde. I kind of went rogue and just did the English degree, which, um, yeah, it was probably the better idea because no one ever told me how to write. I just sort of wrote what came into my head. And when I was at Strathclyde, I was funding my studies by working in a care home. So my initial source of stories was obviously all the old people I was working with, which, um, you know, I, pr- I learned more in the care home than I ever did at Strathclyde. Strathclyde was there. It was good to get a bit of paper. It's always handy. But some of the stuff that I saw in the care home was just, you know, you couldn't make it up. And it was definitely like the most worthwhile experience you could give to a 17 year old reluctantly. They'll reluctantly accept that information because it's a hard paper round as well. But also, I suppose as a writer, that is, I suppose, a gift in terms of the kind of stories that you're hearing. And, the, and, and also when it comes to actually writing characters authentically you've got all that um, that sort of experience to tap into no it was literally the best I remember I started there and when you're, when you're that age this is 10 years ago now and um, when you're that age people are like oh so what are you doing you've left school now and I remember what I said to the nurses oh yeah, I want to be a writer my parents were like for god's sake you need to stop this but they thought oh she's doing an English degree she's probably be a teacher and then the nurse was like oh yeah if you want to write a book you'll get a great story in here of the care home and completely 120 percent right and it was weird because I was stupid at the time and never really wrote about it I'd write the odd thing but the things that stuck in my head were the things I really remembered like there was an old man there and I remember I was taking him to breakfast so you you know you'd help people about because their mobility wasn't great and then he told he said oh do you want to feel my arm like I damaged it during the war and I was like a bit strange his bone was literally still dodgy and he'd been a paratrooper during world war ii and I was like I've touched an arm that was literally damaged by Hitler that is mental and, you know, n- never, ever forgot it. And it was been like a 10 second exchange in my life, you know. I mean, in terms of obviously you've pursued the, the fact that you want to still be a writer. Your mm-hmm. parents obviously see the fact that you've got the book published and it's kind of <laughs> got a, a lot of good publicity, uh, certainly on social media. There seems to be a really good response to it. But mm-hmm. how did it feel? You know, that I was saying how that your book was crowdfunded through Unbound Books. How did that moment feel when it actually hit the target that was set and you knew that it was definitely getting published? It was more exciting when I got the contract than when it came to the money because I was like, come hell or high water, I'm finding that money because I knew that that was the only way the book was ever going to get published. So I thought if I need to donate my own wages, I'm going to get it published. But 
I was fortunate that there's a really big appetite for Scottish literature on the internet, which I didn't even know. Like I found it and it was great. And it, even after it had funded, obviously Scott's word of the day now is quite a big thing on Twitter. And um, Lenny was retweeting the book just before it came out, which meant that it overfunded by 20% just by default. People being like, oh, look, another, a new Scott's book's coming out. And they all ordered it, which was amazing. And it meant that when it came out, because Scots Word of the Day is such a big thing, like I was getting sent pictures of my book. There was one picture of it and it's in Canada and you can see the CN Tower in the background and you would have just never thought that a book that, you know, started as a bit of a joke, to be honest, and then, you know, stuck with it was always going to finish it, that it would just come out and it would just end up in like all these amazing places. There was one picture of it in LA next to a lemon tree and I'm like, this is mad. I mean, that is brilliant. I mean, I should say to people that if, for anybody who's not seen the Scots Word of the Day on, on Twitter, it's mm-hmm. if you follow Len Penny on Twitter, it is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I would recommend it to anyone that you follow her because the, the Word of the Day is just, it's actually genius, I think. Um, yeah, no, completely. I think it's also uh, what Lenny's done is she's opened up a really important discussion about language and identity. And I think it's something that like people like me, like, a lot of people do have to leave Scotland for work or whatever, for family. And, you know, it's given them a real sense of like bringing them back to their roots. And I think that I've seen that through the way Mammy's sold, that people have been interested in what I've been doing, you know, from Australia and New Zealand, all these places that I would never have even imagined. And I was just going to say as well that slightly tenuous link between the Scots Word of the Day and your book. And I, and I mm-hmm. noticed on social media that uh, you're wanting people quite rightly to support uh, and let the publisher know that there is an appetite and there is a market for an audiobook of your novel. Yeah, I would absolutely love it. I've had a few people get in touch and they said like, oh, you know, my mother would like this, but she's, you know, she's visually impaired. She's a wee bit older. And, um, you know, it would be good to make the book accessible like that. Um, I think Scots is an oral language as well. And I think people who might be a bit intimidated by it in the written form might be open, more open to it as an audio book. But it's, I don't know how easy it will be for that to happen. But I'm hoping that if I can show enough demand online that someone's going to pay attention and, and make it happen so fingers crossed because <laughs> the other thing I was going to say is that my so, so my son doesn't really read many books at all he's, he's just mm. books that don't, aren't really his thing but he'd mm. read The Young Team just last Christmas mm-hmm. the Graham Armstrong book which is, again is just mm-hmm. written in West of Scotland dialect and again I think a lot of times I think readers if they see that a story written in their own language in their own voice to me that's that's a positive and you'll that would appeal to a lot of people I think no, definitely. I think like like my auntie read it and she was like, you know, I've not read a book in ages, but after I finished yours, she's like, I got the bug for reading again and went and bought another one, you know, which is really nice. But I think as well with reading, books should be enjoyable, like at heart and they shouldn't be. Sometimes I think when people read, they go for like, you know, the big fancy books and, you know, at the end of the day, you just want a good story. At least I do. I want a good story that I'm going to enjoy. And I think it's great now that audiobooks exist because like that was just not really a thing that in the recent past it just wasn't so like right now like you know I'm doing work but I've got um I've been playing Shuggy Bane in the background and just listening to it which has been great because in my head I'm like Agnes sounds exactly like Jeannie they would have been they might have liked each other they might not have but they definitely had a similar a similar stroke of luck um in their day um so yeah it was, it's really good to have that option and it would be great to sort of try and get mine out there but I really don't know because every audiobook that I know of is in English bar I'm assuming that Train Spotting has an audiobook, but I don't really know of many Scots audiobooks. Well, listen, you, hopefully you'll be blazing a trail. I mean, just for anybody who isn't familiar with the book, could you give us a brief summary of what uh, your novel is? Yeah, about? of course. So the book always started as a story about a queen 
her fall from grace and her eventual redemption. But that queen just happened to be a Glaswegian granny with quite a lot of kids. And then as the book progressed in my head, I like the idea of fallen dreams. And I like the fact that, you know, especially at one point, Glasgow was like, you know, it's the heart of industry, second city of empire. And um, I gave Jeannie a dream and her dream was she wanted to be a film star, but it doesn't quite work out for her. However, it does work out for her best pal. And her, the rest, her entire life is spent raising kids, has a man that drinks too much. Things just don't go right. But her pal's off in America. Pals with Doris Day, Clark Gable, the best of them. And, you know, it's about Jeannie later in life, like, you know, facing the failure of her dream, the fact that she didn't actually enjoy being a mammy very much. But what Jean doesn't know is that her granddaughter wants to write a film and she has no idea. The two of them seem like the most different people ever, but they have this great connection. And it's really about how they come to realise that they have that great connection over the course of about a year. I should say that if uh, on the, the notes for this episode, I'll put a link where you can get a hold of the copy and also... Once you finish listening to this podcast, get on social media and start the campaign for the audiobook as well. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> try, we'll try and drum up some support. In terms of the podcast, obviously what I like to do is just take people on the, the literary journey of their life and, and ask them various questions. The first one is always your favourite book from childhood. And the one that you've mm-hmm. chosen is a book called Elsewhere by Gabrielle Zevin. What mm-hmm. was it about that book that's, that stuck with you? It's just such an unusual premise. So the premise of the book is about a girl that dies and um, in heaven you age backwards, I believe it is. So if you get to heaven and you're a teenager, you slowly start getting your art, you start getting younger. Yeah, and then once you get young enough, you're a baby again and they put you down a waterfall and they send you back to earth. And it's kind of, it's such an interesting premise because she goes to heaven and she meets all these people that are her age, but really they're not her age. They're her age minus however much time they've been dead for. In the, in the book they can like there's like they can con- like water is a really important thing they can contact people on earth through water and send messages it just seemed like a really like interesting premise and I always remembered it because in the book it's like she grows up but she's getting younger and I just always remembered that and like and how like there was different life like how at the end of the book she doesn't get to spend long enough she actually really liked heaven but she never got to spend long enough for it but because now she knows that life's this big cycle in the book you know, she'll come back eventually. She's going to have all these different lifetimes and that's just the way things work. So yeah, it was a really unusual premise and I've, I've never heard of anyone else who's even heard of the book, to be honest. It was just one that I got given as a kid and read it. What, what age would you have been then when you, you read that book? About 12, I think, for that one. It's not a book that I'm familiar with at all. I suppose at that age as well, because you're then going from the books you would have read or been read to you when you were a kid and kind of when you're starting to read the type of books that interest you and starting to develop your own identity as a reader, I suppose, as well. Yeah, completely. Like, I did read before that. It was Harry Potter, but I think that was kind of like, that's the books that you should give kids. It was it was really when I went to high school and there was a library in the high school that I was able to go through the library and then just start picking what I wanted because it was there every lunchtime. Where I grew up, there was a library, but it was easier to get to the school library because you were there every day, so you could just go nuts with the books. And that was... Um, I didn't actually get that one from the school library. I think I got given. My auntie used to try and encourage me to read. So every Christmas I'd get a Waterstones voucher and my mum would take me in and be like, right, what books do you want? So that was kind of one that I'd obviously picked at some point. And I, I suppose, again, at that age, I always think when people, when you read something that has an impact on you, that's why I suppose it stays with you, you know, because you you get so immersed in a book, particularly I think when you are younger and it, you kind of start to realise the everything that a book can give you in terms of where it can take you, in terms of your imagination, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. It's a real sense of, like, escapism. 
real, real escapism that you can enjoy. And um, yeah, I used to read, like, I could read, I remember I read one of the Harry Potter books when it came out. It would have been, what, 2004, 2005, in a day. It's like 800 pages. I was like, you just didn't sleep, did you? Were you always then a voracious reader when you were younger? When I was younger, but then as I got older, it, it became harder because when I went to uni to do literature, that puts you off reading for life. And at that point, I was just completely immersed in, I want to be a writer. How the heck am I going to make this happen? Um, so once I started writing my own stories, that became the focus, not so much reading them. But I did get a heck of a lot of reading done when I was younger. And I still do read. It's just when you're working on your own novels and stuff, you do it becomes harder to read, which is why I've suddenly gotten into audiobooks because it means I can now consume as many books as maybe I would have before, but not feel so bogged down by it. Because when, when you're older, you don't unfortunately have the same amount of time you do when you're 12. So it's nice to sort of be able to consume things in a in a nice background way. I know quite a few people that, that do listen to audiobooks, mainly for the same reasons you've just said there, that you know it fits in with the time, the lifestyle, the work, etc. And for me, However you're consuming books is reading, whether you're listening to them, whether you're reading them, whether you're reading them in a, a Kindle or an e-reader, as long as you're reading books in whatever form, no, completely. I, that, that's a positive thing. I think it's a different experience as well, actually listening to them, because you kind of, I don't know, you feel like it's almost like watching a film but without the pictures there. It's kind of, that's kind of what it feels like. So it's been, it's been good. It's only been the past year, actually, where I've done it, but I've really been enjoying it. And in terms of the, the book elsewhere, did you ever go back or have you ever gone back and read it since? You no, I've been, meaning to, I've been meaning to for years and just haven't gotten around to it, mainly because it's in my parents' loft somewhere, buried under about 200 other books <laughs> that are in. Literally, it's an old, it's the equivalent of a bathtub filled with every book that I did from school and from my English degree. We just put them, we didn't know what to do with them. So my mum's like, we'll just put them all up here and if you want them at some point, they're here, you know where they are. So yeah, I need to go up and sort that problem at some point. That's good that they've kept them all anyway. Yeah, well, it- my mum's like, because... When my book got published, um, I did because it was crowdfunded. Like I obviously put some money into the campaign and I got, I believe it was 100 books and they arrived at the house. My mum's like, the ceiling's going to fall in on us. You need to stop <laughs> this. Because <laughs> the other thing I was going to ask, you know, when you, when you would have started writing, did you write when you were younger? Because I used to always joke to my mum because I started writing daffy stories when I was a wee boy and I always said to her, you should have kept them because just in the off chance I become like a famous author, you can put them on eBay and make some money out of me. But mm-hmm, I don't know mm-hmm. if uh, if you've still got if your parents have kept your. LA I was really efforts. really lucky when I left high school. At that point, I was very much like I'd always wanted to be a writer, but for a while I wanted to be a vet. Realized I just wasn't scientifically minded enough. That was never happening for me. But I thought I'll be like James Herriot. I'll be a vet and I write books. That was the plan. And then um, the the vet thing didn't work out. When I left school, at that point, I was writing kind of semi seriously. And a teacher gave me all my um portfolio from 2005 to 2011 that was when I left school and what was really nice was there was a short story in there and the, one of the, the first piece at least I've got written down in fact I've got a piece from primary school I have got one from primary school but one that's written by hand and it's about my special place in Scotland and then um, last year the Scots Language Centre uh, commissioned a bunch of writers to write a, a project that would increase literacy in Scots and what's really cool is I've written a, a, a novella that is set in a Scottish high school and part of that novella is um, quoting the story that I actually wrote when I was 12. And I put it on Twitter, a picture of it. And they were like, no way you wrote that when you were 12. <laughs> and a teacher saw it and she said, oh, can I show this to my first year class? Because they would to show them that, you know, what they're writing right now could actually be relevant in 10 years time. First year was a long time ago for me. I was like 17 years ago. That is brilliant. But I mean, that's also gives it that with that story that gives it that authenticity that you're actually yeah. 
you know, you're not trying to imagine what you were like at that age. That actually, you've got it there in black and white. Yeah, and it, it was so nice as well that even way back then, I was still writing about Scotland. I was writing about the seaside, and it was Dunoon specifically, and it was about how the Americans went to Dunoon. Um, I believe it was for the naval base. My grandparents uh, lived there. Um, and yeah, it was it was really interesting to think, gosh, even back then, I was literally going to where I was from and writing about it. If I can take you on then from your favourite book from childhood, and we move on to your kind of favourite book from teenage student formative years. And the, the one that you've chosen is mm-hmm. The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. So that was very much like a, I loved it at one point in my life. I don't love it so much, but as like the first adult book that I really loved, that was the one purely because I really liked the prose, but I also liked how it captured what it was like to live in the 1920s because I was always like fascinated by basically anything pre-1950. I just, the sort of optimism and hope. And that is something that came into Be Good to Your Mammy, specifically the 50s, but The Great Gatsby was definitely, um, I guess, an inspiration in the sense of I like how books can be a social commentary and how they can capture what it's like to live in a certain area and during a certain time. And I think that that was something that I definitely took from it that I carried on in my own way, even though like it is a tragic book, The Great Gatsby. It's not a happy story. It's a very, very sad story, actually. It's very well written. It's actually a really short book as well. It's only 47,000. I mean, a brilliant 47,000 words, but actually a really short book but it definitely affected me a lot that book was that a book that you studied at school or was that when you were at university I didn't even study at university it was actually one night after university it was after the final exams and we'd all been out drinking and decided we were going to go to the cinema and the great Gatsby was out and I saw the picture it might have been the alcohol but I thought this was incredible everybody else was asleep and I was like it's amazing (laughs) then I went and bought the book (laughs) Because one of the things that this book in particular has been fascinating for me in, in this podcast, because I've had guests on who have chosen it as, let's say, a book that they'd recommend to anyone, for example. Mm-hmm. I've had other people who have chosen it as a book that you couldn't pay them to read again. So it seems people have completely different reactions to it. No, I can, I can, I can literally understand both. I don't know if I'll ever read it again. I like it and I have a lot of time for it, but I've not read it in a good few years. But definitely was something that very worthwhile I can see why it gets the praise that it does and I also think it is for a book that's praised it's quite accessible I'd say yeah in terms of the writing it's not too bad because the other thing that something you mentioned earlier on which always fascinates me is that people who study English at universities you're saying it almost puts you off the joy of reading because you're then you're having to dissect books academically and I suppose that's the, that would be the worry as a reader of going and studying English because on one hand it appeals to you but then you think I wouldn't want to get put off reading as a result yeah, like it's, it's a difficult one. Like, um, There's someone I'm really close to right now who's um, never went to uni when he was younger. He's 35 and he's like, he's like, ever since he met me, he's like, oh yeah, I, he used to be in a punk band and was like, I want to write a memoir about what it was like to be like a punk rocker in 2007. It's like, great premise. And he's like, yeah, so I think I should just do a degree because I've always wanted to do one part-time an English degree. And I'm like, are you sure you want to do this? I loved doing my master's and I loved Strathclyde had a a visiting writer fellow and what was fantastic about that was I got to do creative writing but nobody was ever assessing me which was great so I really got to enjoy it and because no one ever assessed me there was I wasn't sure if I'd ever get to do like a master's in writing but luckily he gave me a reference and by sheer luck I got to go to Dublin for a year and write and that was like a, a place to go to write Dublin is great Dublin's an amazing city and it was just fantastic and the great thing about the Irish is the Irish are super aware of their culture and their identity. So they have a tram in Dublin called the Lewis. And like, 
it says the announcements in, in Irish Gaelic, which is cool. So after like five months there, you're like, you know what, you know what the place name's all in Gaelic, which is kind of fun. I also think as well that they in Ireland have always been much more aware of their, for example, their literary history that I'm of a different generation from you. And when, when we were going through secondary education in Scotland, we weren't getting taught Scottish history, we weren't getting taught Scottish literature. Whereas in Ireland, it's, they're very proud and very aware of then, but also even now that Irish literature is very vibrant. It's mad. I was, I, I was at Trinity the same year as Sally Rooney, but she wasn't actually doing a writing course. I believe she was doing a literature course, which is really, really funny. Um, but obviously my stuff's like a complete world away from what she's doing. But I was actually on the writing course, but that was actually the first place where I was encouraged to write in Scots. And it was completely like, go for it, go for it, go for it. It was good because I didn't think that it would it would even like meet the standard because obviously they did have to assess it academically. But no, it was seen as just as valid as any other piece of writing that was submitted on that course. And they did send at Trinity Centre portfolios off to Oxford to mark them. And the guy at Oxford, he loved Mammy. He like, that was it. It was a, it was a good to hear Mammy. But it was an early version of it. But he, he gave me the best piece of advice that anyone ever gave me, which was, I love the characters, but why should I care about them? And that was when I thought, right, Jeannie needs something else about her. And that was when I thought she needs to have this hook between her. And, and that was great. That was the best piece of advice. So thank you for that. Because the other thing, you know, obviously you're, you're writing in, in Scots and we mentioned already, it's important, I think, that literature sort of reflects all the different kind of way people speak and the different languages within Scotland. And you're already working in other books and other novels. Is that, is just, just, is that what you feel more comfortable in, in terms of writing in Scots? I'm only writing in the Scots now. Like it's this became. A, I think it took me a couple of years. Like maybe like I, I cannot remember the last thing I wrote in English. I think it would have been a couple of years ago, a short story. But once I got into the Scots, um, Unbound were amazing. They got me a fantastic editor, and um, I got her to look at my second novel for me. And we sat down and had a conversation, and she could just see it in her head so much more clearly than I could. And she's like, "So all your books and all your short stories are basically set in the same Scottish town." And it's weird because there's like a real overlap of characters. There's all these different, it's almost like, you know, when my, when my number's up and whatever I leave behind, it'll literally be all these stories where you get a window into each character during certain times in their lives. And it's um, what's really funny about the little town was, so although I do live in London right now, for sheer on luck, uh, my mum was like, come home last year during the pandemic. She's like, you can't be sitting there by yourself. And um, I got a train up to Glasgow with my hamster because um. I had to self-isolate and um, luckily a family friend had an empty house in Clybank. So I went to the empty house with my hamster, but we couldn't work out if I had COVID or not. So I ended up stuck in this house for two months by myself, which was actually quite funny because the house is on the same street where Be Good To Your Mammy is set. So I actually got to finish Be Good To Your Mammy on the street where I set it. If you told me that, I'd have been like, why would I be there? Like, that makes no sense. But no, I ended up going to get got to do the final edits there and then um, but that part of um, the town, a lot of old people live there and it completely planted all this stuff in my head about old people during the pandemic. And um, like I wrote a story, it's actually probably the best short story I've ever written. And it's about an old man during COVID and uh, he, his dog dies and he decides that he needs a new dog, but he can't get one because he lives in a council house. So he buys a go the ghost of a dog off of the internet. He's like, he's like it's, not, it's never going to work. And uh, yes, I'm really proud of it. And what was amazing was... Um, there's a really good writing company uh, stroke event in London. They actually got a guy in his 60s to perform the story for me, and it was fantastic. It was great. That was in May. It was really, really good. Because ah, the story, that sounds a brilliant idea for a story. Yeah. That's bizarre that you end up, as you say, you end up staying in that same street where you set the book. I mean, it's, it's like it's kind of fate. 
the amount of weird things that have happened with this book has been unbelievable. So uh, Clybank was obviously blitzed really badly uh, during the war. And I had never been in Old Donotter Cemetery before. But after the book was finished, even though I live literally, well, I don't live there. My parents' house is like two minutes walk from it. So the cemetery was always like a big thing growing up. My grandpa was a grave digger. So it was always something I was really super aware of. And then we went to the Old Donotter Cemetery, finally saw the Blitz Memorial. And the weirdest thing about it was one of the main characters in the book, it had the same name as someone killed in the Blitz. Did I know that? Did I not? So the name Lizzie Black is actually the name of someone who died in the Clydebank Blitz. I thought I made that name up. Turns out that it was actually a real person. And I thought that is mad that in my book, she has a completely different life. She's, she's a Hollywood. She's, she's as big as Doris Day in the book. And it's literally a real person, which is mad. That must have given you some sort of goosebumps when you saw that. It was truly, it's just, there's been a lot of really weird, it was almost like, okay, well, I mean, I'm not the most religious person in the world, but I'm like, after after all of this, I'm like, this is spooky. Like, a lot of the <laughs> stuff that's happened to this book is spooky. But there was an old lady who um, inspired, was part of the inspiration for Jeannie, and I went to her funeral, and this was, nobody knew about the book, apart from like, my family and my friends knew I was doing it, but it wasn't, I didn't have a publishing contract. Everyone was just like, no, you know, Emma's a journalist. No one knew I was writing the book. It was very much, I'd done my master's, and, you know, it was a, it was on the background. And I hadn't even finished it at this point. Go to her funeral and um, a really big part of the book is the Catholic religion. And the first, the prologue of the book is called Star of the Sea. And then I get to this woman's funeral and what's the first song they play, Star of the Sea? And I was like, no way. Yeah. I was so, like, that's weird. Somebody Punching. somewhere's keeping an eye out for you. So, so somebody somewhere wanted this story to see the light of day because there's a million reasons why it wouldn't have, that's for sure. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, uh, the writer, Emma Gray. And Emma, we're on to your third book choice, and that is a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And it's actually a book that is coming out in October this year by Guts Publishing, and it's called Blade in the Shadow by Gillian Halkett. And what is it about this book that you want to recommend to everyone? I think right, right now we're getting loads of really great Scottish books, particularly working class voices that you'd never hear. And um, the first book that I read by God's Publishing was um, called um, Euphoric Recall by Aidan Martin um, about his uh, recovery from drug addiction. Um, he's a wee bit older than me in like early 2000s, but I still really related to his experience. And um, I got to interview him and he just has so many interesting things to say. This, um, these stories are just otherwise. I think what's really good about the internet and Twitter is that people can find an audience for these stories that large big five publishers like Penguin would just be like, we're never going to touch that with a barge pole. And Gillian's book's amazing. So it's about her um, experience with OCD and uh, growing up with it and how she makes sense of it. And um, I really related to it because um, weirdly enough, we both have got diagnosed with OCD as well. And it's actually in Be Good to Your Mammy, one of the characters, Kate has OCD. And the weird thing about it was Gillian and me were both at uni in Glasgow at exactly the same time. But we never knew each other. And all these years later, these books um, ended up having this weird connection. And it's a really, I think it shows the dangers of like growing up in any like I think like university can be quite dangerous in terms of like the encouragement to drink is really strong I was lucky that I avoided it by default of working with the dying I couldn't go to the care home smelling a drink it would have never happened and then my mum would have wiped the floor with me so that wasn't happening but if you lived in student accommodation there was definitely a real drinking culture and unfortunately Gillian did uh, become an alcoholic and part of that was because of her OCD 
So it's about her journey with that, how that happened, how she was navigating her sexuality in modern day Scotland. And I just think it's a, you know, it's a really interesting voice that we've not heard before. And she also has um, an unusual, well, not an unusual type of OCD. It's unusual compared to what the media depicts because OCD can latch onto anything. And for her, it was harm OCD. So it's about her having these violent thoughts and the only way she could make sense of it and cope with them was by drinking. And uh, yeah, no, it's a really, really fantastic book. And it's a really easy read as well. So like I said, I find it quite difficult to read right now purely because I'm writing all these books. I've got like my second book's like my main focus right now and it follows on from my novella and only part of my novella has been published. So I've got a lot on right now. But I um, I whisked through that and like literally in a couple of nights. That was how, how much I enjoyed it. Because one of the things that, that struck me when I just was having a wee look about it is that I'm always full of admiration for anybody who does a memoir because mm-hmm. you're kind of bearing your soul and you're letting the whole world into your life, as it were. And even like you, you mentioned about yourself, I know you're on, on Twitter, kind of mm-hmm. very honest and very candid. And, you know, I think that takes a lot of courage to do because you are kind of, I suppose, laying yourself bare, as it were, to friends and strangers alike. It's, yeah, it's definitely not easy because, like, I was not open about having OCD for a really long time. And then because of COVID, I, I kind of had to be because I was like, okay, people need to know what's going on here because it, it was very, very difficult for me being that isolated because I did come back to London. I couldn't stay in Clydebank any longer. I had to come back to my house because I just, you know, I didn't have any of my stuff. I didn't have, like, as someone who's, you know, I've lived independently since basically was 20. So that just suddenly losing my independence and being in this random house with none of my stuff. I mean, I ha- luckily I was working, so I did have money, but it was it was still very isolating. I was used to going out to an office and stuff and, you know, I had to be honest about it. And um, I told my family, but what was really nice was my mum was actually really happy about the fact that I was like, you know, talking about it. Yeah. As you say, that, that's courage for you to open up for her as well. But I suppose she, her, her first thought would always be just wanting the best for you and everything's okay with you, I suppose. Yeah, no, completely. I think she's realised, like I was saying to her, the amount of people that have like, even after reading, like the thing that they said about Be Good to Your Mammy was that, you know, Kate has OCD, but it's not main point of the story she's just trying to live her life with it and what I think's so brave about Gillian's book is like so Gillian's mum's a writer as well and she's on Twitter she's actually written lots of books and then um, you know Gillian's book does not hold back I don't know if I could write a book that honest and put my name to it but it's a real name her mum's completely behind her her family's completely behind it I think that's amazing because that just takes a lot of courage especially if you're writing about hey, I get these violent thoughts that are really upsetting and that takes guts, that really does. So Guts Publishing were well-placed with that one yeah. as well. I mean, in terms of your own book, what was the reaction when your, your parents first read it? Um, my mum knows the whole story, but she's never she's read an early draft of it. She's never read the final cut of the book purely because my mum does have like various um, health problems. And that was one of the points I wanted to make in the book was that just because somebody looks healthy doesn't mean you know what's going on behind closed doors because you don't. They could be suffering a lot. And she's like, one day I'm going to read that book, Emma, but it ain't any time soon. Sorry. She's like, I'm incredibly proud of you, but I'm not reading it. So yeah. she's very excited for the next one because she gets to enjoy it. Because she's like, with, with Mammy, it was like, I'm really proud of it. But it was also a story that I think my mum didn't think that it would see the light of day. She's like, I'm going to be honest with you. She's like, I thought it was great that you got to write it. But I thought that it would have been your second book about, so my second book's about um, a girl trying to be a student teacher in Scotland. Because again, all of my work has some sort of connection to something that I've lived in one form or another. And my mum did think, oh, it'll probably be that one that gets taken. She didn't think it would be Mammy. But weirdly, my dad said he did think I would do it. He's like, no, you're like hopelessly determined. I always thought you'd publish it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you're going to, is it going to be Unbound that are going to publish your next novel as well? 
Um, I don't know what's going to happen right now. I've been approached by a Scottish publisher um, to take my novella, which is great, which means I could potentially get that out within the next year or so. And it's nearly done, but I do want to take my time because books, I do think the editing, a lot of the brilliance of a book is kind of in the editing because you can sort of, you know, add little bits in later in the process that weren't necessarily there in the beginning because um, unfortunately my grand passed um, from COVID, but before we kind of knew she was in her 90s, we knew she didn't have much longer left. And as I was editing Be Good to Your Mammy, I thought, you need to call her and ask her what she's got on World War II because she remembers it. And I did. And she gave me the most brilliant story, which made the book, which was, um, so she lived in Paisley and um, my great grandpa was on the home guard. So he was there. They were under the stairs in the house. And it was uh, during the Blitz and um, apparently someone knocked on the door and my great granny shouted to the kids who would have been like teenagers at the time. She was like, don't answer the door. It's a paratrooper. We're about to all get killed. And apparently my grand turns around and says, why would he knock though? <laughs> <laughs> it was just a neighbour. But that's, I mean, that's the sort of thing that you could, that you would never find in a history book. That's just, that's loving history, isn't it? Yeah, you just, you just wouldn't. And I think what's really lovely about Mammy seeing the light of day is that all these people, even the ones that I knew in the care home, who told me their stories, you know, they get to live again and these stories get to get told. But there was one lady who I absolutely, I had endless time for this old lady. She was a librarian um, in Clyde Bank and um, she told me how she survived the Blitz and it was a class story. She basically told me that, because obviously they had the privy, the old toilets outside. Apparently she went for a pee, the building got bombed and the only reason she survived was because she was having a pee. And I'm like, am I misremembering that and making it into a better story in my head? But I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure that's what she said. So that again comes into the book. So I was like, no, that does make sense. And, and what was weird as well was I wrote about Jeannie wanting to be a Hollywood star just because I've always like found the 1950s interesting. And then um, when I was in Glasgow, part of that also came from the fact that when I finished my master's, I was desperate for work and couldn't get anything. And then um, I actually auditioned to be in train spotting too. So I've actually got the experience of going to like a, an edition in Glasgow and um, and the idea of having a dream and wanting to do something creative kind of came from my own life. In terms of the, the podcast, and I always love doing this, going from getting you to, to choose a book that you recommend to anyone to mm-hmm. asking you for a book that I couldn't pay you to read again. And mm-hmm. the one that you've chosen is Middlemarch by George Eliot. So why, what is it about that, that I couldn't pay you to read it again? I didn't even read it the first time I gave up. <laughs> I was like, this is absolute shit. But I think I've got like a point to make by why I just dislike it. I think I think growing up, like, and I think one of the unfortunate things and why I think the education system should change a bit is like, you know, they get kids to study. Like, so when I very briefly was in a Scottish high school, I remember I had a, a second year class and um, we had to do um, the Twelfth Night. That was it, the Shakespeare play, the Twelfth Night. And they gave them like a simplified version of the Twelfth Night for 12 year olds. And I'm like, why are we doing this? They're 12 years old. Do they care? Do they? No, this is stupid. Why are we teaching them? Along with the fact that it's, it was in old, like Shakespeare's obviously old English. It's not even English that people speak. And don't get me wrong, it does have a place, but why these children would be a million times more engaged if we were to tell them, here, why don't you write the bit, write about what happened to you at the weekend and write about it in Scots? And I honestly think from a literacy point of view, they would learn so much more. So as like, someone who's literate in Scots like um, as a journalist I have to write in American English and I honestly think being fluent in Scots and English has made that ability to transition between spellings so much easier so there was actually I was having a discussion on dates today on Twitter with people where someone said you know they shouldn't teach Scots in Scottish high schools because not everyone in Scotland speaks Scots and English is a more useful skill to have down the line and I completely disagree and I also think that you know when you're 12 you don't want to learn these things and 
Middle March was one of those horrible books that we got assigned at university. And it was just like, why? Like, why are we doing this? Like, I'm, I'm going to gain nothing from this. And the truth was that I didn't gain much from the four years. It was more useful, like I said, being in the care home. I got more out of that than I did out of getting hit over the head with all these big books that I just didn't really care about. Kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier on about if you teach kids, if you give them books and you teach them in a language they understand and they recognise, they're definitely going to take it in more than... I mean, I, I'm one of my pet hates is, is Shakespeare being taught in schools, going back to when I was at school, but then also when my kids were going through school and we would go, if they were studying at, say, Macbeth and it was on at a theatre, we would go and it was brilliant because it's, it was written to be performed, not to be studied mm-hmm. in a classroom. And yeah. it's two totally different things. Whereas, as you're saying, if you were given books or you were asking kids to write in their own language, I think you'd get much more out of them. No, you would. Like, I genuinely think that it's a complete mistrick. And I know I, I know the system's changing a bit, but I do think that it's still favoured in English. And it's not, it's a classist issue, though, fundamentally. It is a classist issue. It's like, why are you writing in slang? It's not seen as like a legit thing and it's not seen as having any value, but the skills are transferable and they are useful. So I also think there's, I think certainly in recent years, there's, there's I suppose, with the kind of, the upsurge and maybe support for independence and that kind of divide after the referendum that mm-hmm. whether it's language in Scots or whether it's Gaelic, it's almost seen as like to advocate for either of those, you, you automatically have to be, well, that, that must be a political statement, which is nonsense. Yeah, I really have a problem with that. I don't like the fact that it's become a political issue because I do not and cannot have an opinion really. Like, I do have an opinion, but I don't really have any right to an opinion because I've not lived in Scotland. Like I lived in Dublin and then I ended up in London and briefly went back to Glasgow. What happens to Scotland, unfortunately, doesn't affect me anymore. You know, it affects my family, but it's not, you know, I don't understand why Scots is getting in it, especially on Twitter. There's a lot of unionists who will come on and slam Scots books. And I'm like, I just published a Scots book and I live in London. Like, come on. And, and, and the thing is, as well, there's so many English people that love Scots. Like, um, the amount of English folk that I've put onto Still Game has been ridiculous. It's literally, like, various houses in London. It's now the background noise because it's like, no, I love that. Like, I love Winston. No, keep it coming. Like, I want to know. And it's like, it's really, really funny because they do the accents and stuff. And it's like, there's a big appeal to it. And it's got nothing to do with politics. It's got something to do with identity and class. But unfortunately, the internet being the internet, I think folk just love a fight. Because the thing I would, I would always argue is that so obviously these languages are deep-rooted in our history and culture and they're being kind of suppressed. But also, for people who would say that they were Scottish but still part of the UK, part of that is those languages are, are still part of Scotland, whether you like it or not. So you can't... Why would you hide that? No, completely. Like, I think... I just don't understand as well, because I was saying uh, yesterday that, like, I feel like if you look at the canon of Scottish literature, you've got books like Jekyll and Hyde and stuff that are, like, kind of traditional Scottish books, but they are written in English. But how many Scottish stories have actually been told in the voice that they were meant to be told in? Like, hardly any. And it's a real, it's a crying shame. And if you look at that as well, it just means that there's such a, an opportunity if someone's got an interest in writing in Scots to actually now's the time to sit down and think, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that story because the chances are it's unlikely that it's been done before. I think if you're a writer, because you have to, you spend so much of your own time and you invest so much of your time in doing it that you have to, you have to do what you want to do and what you think is right, not what you think other people. Because ultimately, it's like you have to write the book that you want to read, not what somebody else tells you. Yeah, and I mean, when I was younger, I made the mistake of trying to write like, I was terrible. I said, I was, I had this, so I was talking to the Scottish uh, book club, Scottish book club, I believe it's called, last night. And I said, like, my hard drive, some of the stuff on it. 
I, I don't know whether to burn the hard drive or whether to get like, <laughs> under my bed and I'm like do I but it's such shite it is shit because my mum mum was like my mum saw some of that stuff and she's like well I knew you had to change what you were writing because stuff you were doing when you were younger was absolutely shit and I'm like yeah I know it was shit we need to bring that back like I know it was shit it was literally a conversation with a guy who's Irish American his name's Chris Ag. And I've not been able to say, actually, I should, I should be able, he's in Northern Ireland. I don't know why I've not actually got around to that yet. I'll send him because I'm waiting on the second printing of Mammy because we're kind of getting a bit short on books right now. But he sat me down because I submitted one of these stories to a writing workshop at Strathclyde. And he was like, no. But he said it in a really good way. He started having a conversation with me. And um, he was in his 50s at the time. Started having a conversation with me and he was like, and then I told him about the care home. And he's like, oh, go write that. That sounds like a great story. So then I went home and I remember I was literally walking up to Queen Street Station and I had my iPhone and I started writing down the notes. And I was like, actually, I think this guy's got a point. And then I came in with the piece about the care home. And that was probably the first true good thing that I'd written in a really, really long time. And that just spiraled. And again, it was using some Scots, but completely unintentionally. I don't know if he knows that I published a novel based on it, but I'm sure he's going to find out. I'm sure he'll be quite chuffed that like that, that conversation that we had in that cafe. You know, I listened. You know that way sometimes it's just, you say one conversation, somebody just says the right thing to you and it kind of all makes sense. Maybe, you know, nudges you in the right direction of, he sees the talent, but he just wants to channel it or say, don't do this, do that, or try this. Like, honestly, no one is above criticism. And like, I'm sure there's things with Mammy that, you know, I'm, I'm happy with it. I think I did is justice to the story. But, you know, I learned a lot from the process of writing it. It was written in four voices. That was a hard thing to do for a first novel. But it's weird because I said, oh, I'm never going to do that again. But the, the narrative for the second one is also quite complicated. But then um, I got told that Ellie Percy is having um, aliens in their next book. So clearly we're <laughs> ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're on to the, the fifth and final question in the podcast. And that is either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And the, you've given me a couple of debut novels, actually. The first one is a book that was published in June this year by Colin Burnett called A Working Class State of Mind. I understand it was written in East Coast Scots. And what is it about that book that appeals to you? I mean, it's great. It's, it is. It's very it's strong train spotting vibes. I know a lot of people have said that to him already, but I do love the fact that it's in East Coast Scots because it's just like, oh, that's how you spell that word. That's not how I would spell that word. But I understand how, how it's um, It's been really interesting to read to sort of like see the differences between them. And it's also really cool that um, all these Scots books have just came out at once and it was none of us knew that we were doing it. It was a complete accident that they just happened. But again, what's quite been quite good is that they've all came out through unusual means. None of these Scots books that have seen the light of day really have came from major publishers. It's all been slightly roundabout ways that they saw the light of day. But I'm hoping that because they have been successful, that it will encourage more publishers to take note. So like I said, I'd love Mammy to be an audio book, but whether that happens or not, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, whatever. But hopefully, at least when it comes to other people getting their, their books out there, it encourages more publishers to say, hey, there's a market for Scots literature, because I'm sure there's loads of fantastic stories out there in Scots that just haven't been told. And uh, Scott, um, sorry, uh, Colin's book, calling him Scott, because I've got the word in my head. <laughs> Colin's book is uh, short stories as well, which is quite cool. So it's a completely different way. They're all, everything that's came out recently is kind of different in terms of how it's formed as well, which is really interesting. When I said earlier on, when you're writing yourself, especially when you're balancing that with a full-time job as well, you have to enjoy what you're doing because it's your free time that you could be doing something else. You could be doing nothing, but yeah. if you're not enjoying it, I'm obviously you're not going to enjoy it all the time because sometimes it's you need to force yourself, push yourself. 
Because if you I always think if you're not enjoying it, if you're not convinced with the story, I don't think MD else will be when they come to read it. Yeah, and it's weird as well though, because some of the stuff like I do think that because there are you do there's such a thing as a celebrity offer. Like Sally Rooney's kind of a good example of someone who, you know, there's a huge cult of celebrity within literature right now. Like, you know, if you go on Love Island and you want to publish a book, you can. Like, I remember like, it was Danny Dyer, like no offense to Danny Dyer. I remember her book was out and I was in the airport going to Dublin and I saw her book as like number one in WH Smith. And, you know, Mammy was just sitting on my laptop and I'm like, gone on Love Island. Then <laughs> I was like, nobody would have liked you on Love Island. They wouldn't have understood you and you would have been way, you'd have said the wrong thing. You would have, no, no, that wouldn't have worked. The, the boys would have hated you. But yeah, it was like frustrating that, you know, and she'd obviously, and it was literally a couple of months after she'd finished Love Island. And in my head, I was like, oh, did she write that or did a ghostwriter? Did she sit down and say it? And the ghostwriter got paid however many thousand to write it. And I'm just like, that annoys me. And um, it's the same with publishing as well. It's so hard. It's so much is on the offer as well. It's a huge investment on the offer in terms of, you know, promoting it, time. It's it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. I agree with you. Because I always think, I'm never that bothered about the celebrity that, that does the book. And I agree with you. I think it's mm-hmm. a ghostwriter. It's the publisher that throws the money at them. Because if somebody's going to throw money at them and say, we'll give you X amount and just put your name to this book, of course they're going to say yes. but I always feel then you miss out on so many other books, so many other authors that that money could be better spent. It's a shame. I think what the good thing about Unbound is they have taken on a lot of books. Because they crowdfunded them, there was no risk to Unbound in publishing the book. So if they liked the sound of it, they could just publish it. So it meant that if the book didn't perform well, no one lost anything. You weren't like, you know, everybody was happy either way. Um, So because of that, they were able to sort of take a chance. And I mean, the other one they published this year, The Mash House, has done fantastic. It was a bloody Scotland. And it was really weird because I got to virtually meet Alan because we'd known each other over Twitter, but I'd never like been in a Zoom call with him. And apparently he had written part of The Mash House. So he's a teacher. He's a head of English at a school in Scotland. He'd written part of The Mash House. And then apparently he'd seen Mammy on Twitter. And then he'd seen that I was publishing it through Unbound. And he had this idea for a book. So he sends the idea for a book to Unbound, forgets about it. Unbound gets back to them a couple of months later and says we're going to publish it and then he, he dms me and he's like can you tell me more about this because uh, they've just accepted my idea and they said as long as I've crowdfunded it and the book is finished they'll publish it and I was like yeah and I was like wow it's really weird that on the internet you just don't realize that you're having an influence in a good way on people because you only ever hear like the bad stories about the internet but it's kind of funny because I'm like oh I've got a copy of the mash house in my room and by default of being a gobshite on twitter it exists <laughs> So that was, the other, that was the other book that you chose, The Mash House by Alan Gillespie, because interestingly, mm-hmm. it was another unbound author, a guy called Aidan McQuaid, who was a previous guest on the podcast, mm-hmm. who'd actually, he'd got in touch with me again and had said you would be a good person to get on the podcast uh, with a book coming out. So there must be a kind of unbound loyalty between all of you that you're, you're all supporting each other. It's been great. We've got a little Facebook group with everybody in it. So um, people go in there. They If they want to have a moan, they can have a moan because it, it's difficult because like you wait a lot, like, you wait for reviews, you know, you send books out, people might not get back to you. And, and it's expensive as well, like in terms of when you're sending out copies of books, like I had to, I've had to unfortunately say no to books outside of the UK right now because cause of Brexit, because I tried to send a book to the Republic of Ireland and it was £13 postage along with the cost of the book because of Brexit and I was like I can't do it it's it's just a lot of money like just to send it there I was like it would be cheaper putting the book on a Ryanair flight like literally (laughs) than paying the postman to send it and I mean I'm hoping that it calms down because there's a lot of people in Ireland who pre-ordered Be Good to Your Mammy who weren't able to get their books right now because Unbound have told me that they're hoping that the postage situation 
sorts itself out over the next couple of months. But right now it's a complete disaster zone in terms of even within the UK, getting the books to bookshops is hard because of Brexit right now, which is really annoying. I mean, as I say, I I love the whole idea of Unbound and just the fact that just ordinary people, readers, they like the idea of your book, they commit to it. And then, as I say, I I guess it must just give you that confidence that you know that there's there's an audience out there, even before the book's published, that that are wanting to read your story. It's been it's been so nice as well because I remember when the book so they they have like a supporter list where everyone that supported it can then put their name down and get it printed in it and I remember uh, someone put it so I'm at uh, during lockdown loads of my friends we all ended up in this big group chat and this group chat got out of hand there was like a hundred of us but everyone was lovely because they all knew each other in some form or another and someone put a link to the book and was like everybody get behind Emma's book and then I went to a party like a month ago and some of these people I'd just never met and they're like I've got your book in my house and I was like thanks and then it was really funny because then after the after the birthday party um, I went back for like a small after party to this house with these people I'd never met before and they all had copies of Be Good to Your Mammy so I did an impromptu signing at five in the morning. <laughs> I mean that's that is strange but wonderful. Yeah it was it was great to just think that people like total strangers were willing to sort of take a punt which is why like you know on Twitter as well like, I think it's really good that like I think indie offers as well just should really support each other as much as they can if especially if you're within the same genre or you're writing about the same theme or whatever, it costs literally nothing to be nice, you know? And did that, you know, the whole Unbound experience and, as I say, the, the reaction to your book, did that just give you kind of renewed confidence when it came to, to writing the novella and then working on your second novel? Oh, yeah, completely. Like, it's been, like, I'm just really excited to get going, but, like, I'm I'm, I'm starting a new job next week, so I'm like, oh, Emma, you need to relax, because last night I was, like, at 12 o'clock at night, I was like, I really want, because basically um, part of my second novel, there's a scene set in um, the Glasgow Necropolis. So I went to Strathclyde Uni, which is literally next to the Necropolis. and used to go there all the time for walks. And um, I got told that when they buried people back there, then they put bells on their fingers. So if they accidentally buried them alive, they could ring their finger, which I thought was like the grimmest thing ever. So there was a chapter in my book called Finger Bells. But then again, this podcast makes the internet look much greater than it is. Certain parts of the internet are wonderful. And um, through Scottish Twitter, um, I discovered that these two friends had set up a podcast called The Creepy Wee Podcast. And it's only been out for like two weeks or whatever. But one of their first episodes was about the Gorbals vampire. And how I had never heard of this, I don't don't know because it's amazing, which was basically that back in the 1960s, a group of about 500, I think it was like four or 500 kids descended on the necropolis looking for a vampire with iron teeth. And I was like, that's mad. And not only that, one of the kids brought their auntie because they thought their auntie was really scary and that that would scare the vampire. <laughs> and it literally ended up in all of the newspapers in Glasgow. Like, this was a thing. And then I thought, if I'm going to write a chapter set in the necropolis, somebody needs to mention the vampire because that's too good. Like, Absolutely. how is that piece of, like, little tiny folklore history just being completely lost, you know? So I was like, every time, every time I take someone to Glasgow, I'm like, you have to go to the necropolis. It's just... But also, like, Edinburgh as well has that because I've been... Um, I was up in Scotland um, in July and um, we went to Edinburgh for the day and was like we went to Mary Queen's Close. I think that's like the third or fourth time that I've been there, like down into that old street in Edinburgh. I just think it's fascinating and it's just completely as it was, like because they covered it up. And the irony of going back recently, of course, was um, obviously Edinburgh got hit really badly by the plague. So it had a whole new meaning to me when I went back in 2021. I thought I never thought I would understand their lives this much. Absolutely. Out, I do. <laughs> sadly, sadly, we all do. Yeah. <laughs> Even more sadly, Emma, is that we've kind of come to the end of the, the podcast. 
no, I have to say, fantastic. <laughs> I, I've, I've loved talking to you about some of your favourite books, your not-so-favourite books, and then also your own novel. As I said at the start of it, I'll put a link on the, the show notes for anybody that wants to get a copy of Be Good to Your Mammy. It's published by Unbound Books. And as we said at the start as well, for anybody who likes to listen to audiobooks, get on the campaign so that <laughs> uh, this book becomes an audiobook. I wish you every success with this novel. And I'm really looking forward thank to you seeing, so, so much. to see what else that you, you're going to be bringing out for us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. It's just so great to have all these opportunities to sort of spread the word. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.